It'd be a great thing to have open in front of you uh, God's Word. Uh, we read it earlier, Eden read it for us, that passage from Mark chapter 14. Uh, you had your own little questions. We had an opportunity to chat to the people around us. Things would have been uh, ticking away in your mind, even as we've been praying, and even as we've been hearing about God at work in our church. Um, he's going to speak to us now, uh, but let's pray that he might speak clearly. Lord and Father, uh, what a great and gracious God you are that you might speak to us, and we pray uh, that you would give us um, ears, hearts, minds that are ready to receive your word. Uh, we pray that you would take your word and by your spirit write it in us in such a way that we'd be changed, that we'd be different, that we'd be comforted uh, and even challenged. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd change us to be more and more like your son, for in him is life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we've just been praying, praying for a little while. We've been praying... In the comfort of this cathedral, a little bit of warmth, a little breeze, I know, uh, praying publicly, and what a privilege we get to look at Jesus. Jesus praying, praying in private, praying in agony, praying in the garden, praying when he's overwhelmed and giving us an insight. Uh, what a privilege. Some people uh, chatted today describe this as one of their favourite parts of God's word, um, one of my favourite bishops, no, my favourite bishop, would say we're treading on holy ground as we come here. This is a special privilege. We get to come and see Jesus speaking to his father just hours before he's going to go to the cross. And he opens that up to us and what do we see? He's overwhelmed. Verse 34, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, not what I will, but what you will. Uh, Jesus, we see in this private moment, Jesus lives by what he taught. Um, you'd remember his model prayer. We, we pray it often. Um, he taught us to pray, your will be done. And they weren't empty words for Jesus. He's no hypocrite. And they are not easy words to pray, your will be done. See, praying, not my will, but yours, touches our fear of submission, of giving control of life over um, uh, a long-term Christian, he was uh, at a, an ordination service, a service for making new ministers, um, and the promises and the prayers there hit him in a way that they hadn't before. And the heart of one particular prayer struck him. It was along the lines, I am no longer my own, but thine, yours, God. Do with me what you will. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And he found himself listening to that prayer, uh, being part of this service, and he, he, he couldn't pray it wholeheartedly. He was concerned about things like personal success. He, he felt this need to, to actually hold on to certain areas of his life and, and he cared about his reputation and certain comforts and he was a little worried what it might mean to really pray that of giving everything over to God. What might it mean? What might it cost to hand everything over to God? Even though in his head he knew God actually controlled everything anyway, <laughs> wasn't his to hand over. See, some of us will see Jesus there praying in the garden, hearing him say, yeah, your will, not mine, and our fears of submission will surface because these are not easy words. And to pray, not my will, but yours, uh, will also highlight the burden of your failure, my failure, our failures. Uh, another believer's uh, teenage years were haunted by Gethsemane, he said. Uh, he saw... Christ there in the garden giving it all up for God and so night after night he, he, he prayed what he considered were Gethsemane prayers. You know, God, 
take me, God, use me, God, come into my life, have it all, your will be done. Um, and after like a thousand or so of prayers like that and no real change in his life, kind of constantly still failing, uh, this young man concluded, well, maybe God doesn't want me. Uh, and so for a time he decided he didn't want God and he wandered away from church. So we, we, we hear Christ in the garden and we know that we don't actually give ourselves completely to God even if we want to and so some will see Jesus in the garden and be confronted with your own shortcomings, your own failings. Your will be done. These are not empty words of Jesus but they're not easy words. But from Jesus' lips they're words, can I say, that will drive out your fears and lift your burdens if you understand them rightly. And that's what God wants us to do tonight, understand them rightly. A beautiful truth as we listen to God, Jesus faithfully trusts his Father's will. Jesus faithfully trusts his Father's will. Um, Gethsemane uh, means olive press. Uh, and Jesus is hard-pressed. He is there and, he, and his heart is open and there he is in his darkest hour and Jesus lives out what he preached. You know, he brings his desires to the Father. So when Jesus is praying, you know, take this cup from me, he is being honest, he's opening up, he, he's exploring the limits of God's purposes without exploding the bounds. And so in his darkest moment, Jesus faithfully trusts his Father's will. Uh, and there are two parts of this truth uh, that will take away our fear of submission, take away that kind of burden of failure if we see it. The first is this, Jesus prayed, thy will be done with eyes open. As Jesus prayed, knowing exactly what submission to the Father meant. Uh, Jesus, if you look at it, doesn't die well. He doesn't die impressively. Uh, 14 verse 33. He is struck with this new feeling, um, deep distress and trouble. Uh, the original word there that suggests the kind of greatest possible degree of, of horror and suffering. And so in verse 34, Jesus is so overwhelmed with sorrow, he thinks the sorrow itself, the grief, the pain, the feeling is actually going to kill him even before he gets to the cross. Um, and, the, and the next verse, he falls to the ground in prayer. Now in the Bible, uh, lay, you know, praying laid out is a sign of either full submission or total distress. And Jesus is doing both. He did not you know, die well, impressively. He's kind of falling apart. Um, many have died better. You know, many Christians have died equally painfully, but with a, a kind of, you know, a stiff upper lip. They've, they've kind of looked impressive doing it. There's um, a, a cross in Oxford's Broad Street. It marks the place where, in 1555, uh, two faithful bishops were burnt uh, alive at the stake for defending the gospel. And as the flames were kindled, Bishop Latimer comforted his Christian brother with these words. He said, "Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man." We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And that's dying impressively, isn't it? You know, flames are leaping and you've got a line like that in you. you know, Latimer and Ridley died well. But Jesus in the garden on the ground, overwhelmed with a horror that threatens his life. Why? Because Jesus prayed thy, father, uh, thy will with his eyes open. He knew exactly what submission meant. He knew, verse 36, the cup. He knew it was the cup of God's righteous anger at sin, God's fury at the whole world's failure to love him and love others and the, and the way it's disfigured his creation. Uh, Isaiah 51 says that those who drink this cup of wrath stagger. And in the garden, Jesus staggers and falls to the ground. In the garden, he begins to experience what he's going to receive in full on the cross when he will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So Jesus was overwhelmed because he began at that moment drinking the cup. See, to drink the cup, it's more than physical pain, as painful as crucifixion was. It's more than reputational shame, and he was about to die as a disgraced criminal. To drink the cup is to be abandoned by God. And in drinking the cup, he took our place that we might take his. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. As Jesus is about to become the one thing that cannot be in the presence of his perfect heavenly father. And so in the garden, he starts to experience God's abandonment when he needs it most, the horror. Uh, William Lane puts it this way, um, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father. Everything he had was for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. The emptiness and the abandonment. Jesus began to feel the, re- the, the sting of rejection. Now, sadly, it might be the case, some of us here tonight know what it's like to go to um, your mother, your father, in that moment of need and have them fail you. And here is Jesus coming in his darkest hour, realising the cup actually means rejection. That he comes to the Father and the Father is going to turn away at one point. If God is to save sinful people, the Father has to tell his son, you are not my child. See, in the garden, God began to experience himself being torn apart. And so he, Jesus prays because the temptation to run was real. Uh, Jesus' great fear in this moment is not that our sin, your sin, might tear God apart, but that his sin would. And so he prays for strength. He prays that his own human flesh wouldn't fail his willing spirit. He prays because the only thing worse than Jesus taking our our sin, our guilt and shame and being cast from the Father's presence would be Jesus becoming just like us and turning away from the Father with his own sin, his own guilt and shame. And so the temptation was real in that moment as hell opened up before him. And so Jesus prayed, thy will with eyes open, knowing exactly what it would cost. And secondly, with that, Jesus trusted his father and chose to go. Knowing all of his, you know, Christ didn't want to drink the cup. It wasn't like he found pleasure in pain. But he wasn't a victim. He went willingly. He trusted the father's goodness. He trusted the father's greater plan of love and obeyed for us. So there's a reason Jesus begins to experience the cup's reality in the garden. It shows he chose the cross with full knowledge. You know, it was dark in the garden. Uh, disciples were asleep. Guards hadn't arrived. Uh, Committed when the, you know, kind of the nails were in his feet and hands. How easy would it have been for him just to slip away? But in the garden, Jesus starts to experience what he was going to suffer so that it would be his choice with full information to go to the cross. Jesus chooses the Father's will ahead of his own comfort with complete understanding. Uh, in fact, the word Mark uses to describe Jesus' feelings can also mean astonished or amazed. It's used a little earlier in the Gospel. In, in chapter 10, verse 32, the disciples were astonished at Jesus' resolve to go to Jerusalem after he said, this is what's going to happen to, to me. Um, knowing what was ahead, they're astonished, but, but he wasn't at that point. But 14, verse 33, even though he predicted it, Jesus himself is now astonished. He's starting to experience it And he's amazed. He's overwhelmed. Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon, Christ's Agony, uh, Jesus, it'll appear on the screen, I think. Or it may not. Yes, it will. Uh, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. 
He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. That is, there is Jesus, he's in the garden and he feels the heat. And when he could have easily fled into the dark night, he chooses to drink the cup for you and for me. He trusts the the, the Father's plan of greater love. And so he doesn't run, he doesn't fight, he doesn't lie. It's been observed that suffering is that gap between your desires and your circumstance. Suffering is the gap between your desires and your circumstance. That pain comes from your situation not matching your kind of heart's longing. This is what you'd like it to be and it's not it and there's the suffering there. And so to escape suffering, what do you got to do? Well, you, you, know, you can change your desires. What's in here, you know, that's the, the Buddhist solution of detachment from life. It's the stoic solution of you know, deny your emotions. Pretend they're not there, just squash them down and keep a stiff upper lip. You can, you can change what's going on in here. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? No, he, he owned his desire. He poured it out to the Father. He wasn't going to... Um, the other solution to suffering then is, well, I'll change my circumstance. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get politically active and reorder society or I'll, I'll just escape. I'll, you know, I'll get a new job. I'll get a new circle of friends. I'll, I'll go on a holiday, you know. Jesus doesn't do that either. He trusts the Father and he loves into the suffering. He trusts the Father and his great plan and he doesn't run. So, verse 42, his betrayer arrives and Judas hands him over with a kiss, this sign of respect and friendship, but it's all ironic because there's no respect, there's no friendship. But the most painful line is verse 50. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. And one young man is so keen to get away, he runs away naked, um, leaving others to hold his garment. Uh, There is a prophecy, Amos 2.16, in the day of God's judgment, even the bravest warriors will flee. And yet Jesus will not flee. And Jesus trusts the Father and he doesn't fight. So verse 43, um, those who are coming for Christ are armed. You know, violence breaks out and ear is lost. But verse 48, he makes clear that the rebellion, the, the overturning of society he's come to bring is not about force. He brings the kingdom with the power of God's word by persuasion, not coercion. Jesus doesn't fight. And Jesus trusts the Father and he doesn't lie. Um, a little after where Eden stopped reading, verse 55, um, the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, already had their verdict, but they just had no justification. They had to make that up. So these um, verse 56 and 7, these false and clashing testimonies are given, trying to frame him. That's not going to convict. That's not going to stand. The only evidence that convicts is verse 62 from Jesus' own lips. Verse 62, I am, he says. Um, it's possibly a divine claim, I am, I am God, but certainly he's owning that he's the Messiah. He is the king who's going to return, rule an eternal court. He's going to be there at the right hand of the Almighty and one day he's going to come back, they'll see his glory, they'll have to give an account to him. Though it costs his life and reputation, Jesus will not lie. He will not get out. Suffering is that, that gap between your desire and your circumstance, but Jesus is not going to change either because he knows the goodness of God's plan, the Father's plan. And he knows the only way to reconcile the world to himself, to reconcile sinners like you and me to himself, to purchase us, to love us, is to go and obey the Father. So Jesus loves into the suffering for you and me. He chose to do the Father's will. That is, Jesus prayed, thy will with his eyes open. And he trusts the Father through the suffering for us. And if you get that, if you see him, if you understand the way he's praying, um, it will reshape you in a few ways. It will lift your burdens. It will ease your fears. 
It'll transform you three ways. First, he calls you to faithfulness. Watch and pray. So we, we have this habit, we underestimate the challenges, the temptations of life and we overestimate our capacity to deal with them. And so we think, you know, we can deal with it ourselves and, and we think that actually the problems of life aren't so big, they're not eternal consequences and so we fail. See, without total trust in the Father, we will fail and Jesus models this is how you overcome temptation. Verse 32, you notice he invites the disciples to, to sit and watch him pray and then he gets the, um, the other three to witness him wrestling. And in verse 37, he laments Peter's asleep and verse 38, what's he say to them to do? Watch and pray. Not for him. He hasn't brought them along for his benefit. They're, they're useless. Um, none of the Father is his help. And they fail to pray because, verse 40, their eyes are heavy. They don't watch. In one sense, that's just because they're tired. You know, it's late, it's dark, they've had a big meal, um, you know, post-Christmas lunch, think they're dozy, uh, this is a festival. Um, but more powerfully, their eyes are heavy, pointing to their inability to see reality. A little earlier on, Mark 8, Jesus healed a blind man in two stages. Stage one goes from seeing nothing to seeing kind of people going around like walking trees and then stage two, um, seeing completely. And then he has a conversation with the disciples and goes, who who do people say I am? And and Peter goes, oh, you're the king. Now let me tell you how to be a king. Let me tell you how to do the job. Like, sees but doesn't see, the eyes are heavy. And here again, they see in part, not clearly, their heavy eyes in Gethsemane, they fail to see the spiritual importance, the danger of the moment. And if they'd seen clearly and watched, they would have stayed awake and prayed. Not seeing that spiritual threat led to them being self-reliant rather than prayerful, relying on the Father, which led to failure. You know, they promised, well, you know, we'll die for you, Jesus. We'll draw swords for you, Jesus. And then they're fleeing naked. You know, for Peter, Peter followed all the way to court uh, in verse 54. But then... You know, by verse 68, he's pleading ignorance of Jesus. He's denying him outright by verse 71. Notice what's going on here. The steps to spiritual failure are small and they're marked with good intentions and self-confidence. The danger's not that big. I can deal with it on my own. And failure is where we, where we land when we don't watch and pray. Uh, reflecting on this passage, uh, J.C. Ryle gives this advice. He says, watching without praying is self-confidence and self-conceit. Praying without watching is enthusiasm and fanaticism. But the man who knows his weakness and knowing it both watches and prays is the man that will be held up and not allowed to fall. He, he calls you to faithfulness. Watch and pray. This is how to overcome. But secondly with it, his faithfulness overcomes your failure. You can pray thy will with relief. Um, yes, we're called to faithfulness, but Jesus knows your weakness. He, he predicted it right at the start, 20, verse 27. You're all going to fall away. But in the garden, he is perfect for us, the imperfect. Now, in that moment of, of testing and temptation, he is faithful when we're not. Um, there are actually two trials in this chapter. Uh, Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin and he's faithful. But then Peter, Peter's out in a courtyard and he faces a judge who's a little servant girl. Um, No power to harm him in verse 67 and yet he breaks down. He's faithless. In fact, by the end of the chapter, verse verse 72, Peter hears the rooster and he remembers Jesus' promise and he breaks down and he weeps. In fact, it's the word there for being cast down or overthrown. He's totally overcome with his failure. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've kind of made commitments to God and you've, you've let him down again and again and again and you just felt totally overwhelmed with your failure. Well, thankfully, it's not the last word on Peter. 
Peter is later restored by the risen Jesus. It's what verse 28, right at the start, a, a promise of a new beginning. Jesus says, I'm going to rise, I'm going to go ahead to Galilee where it all began. In other words, here's a fresh start. His faithfulness is stronger than your failure. You know, his prayer in the garden is him meeting your greatest need. He's our representative. You know, Adam disobeyed in the garden of paradise, but the last Adam obeyed in the garden of agony. Now, that young man I told you about at the start, uh, who was burdened by Gethsemane prayers, he, um, he did make his way back to church. He found himself back in a Bible study and he was looking at this particular passage. Uh, and he admitted to the group he was feeling a bit daunted. He confessed that he couldn't pray Gethsemane prayers the way Jesus did. And his leader you know, re- replied, you know, bluntly but helpfully, he goes, the way Jesus did. Do you think you're Jesus? No, no, you're not Jesus, you're Peter. And, and for him, the penny dropped. It was kind of the burden was lifted. Thought, Great, I'm, I'm Peter. I am weak, useless, faithless Peter. I, I ought to pray with Jesus and I don't. And, and that's okay, I failed. But as I failed, Jesus prays for me. There's your burden lifted. Your hope is not what you offer to God, but what Jesus has done in your place. And so while you sleep and you fail and you flee and you deny him, Jesus is praying for you. You will fail, Jesus. But your performance is not the final word. You can pray thy will with relief that you're not rejected in your weakness because Jesus is accepted. And thirdly, lastly, his faithfulness will overcome your fears. Can I say it is safe to pray thy will? Now, Jesus, Jesus, we, we might be scared of giving control over to God, uh, but actually when we see his plans are good, his plans are loving, when he knows more than us, it is safe to give everything over to him. Verse 38, um, Jesus prays Abba, an Aramaic term. Abba, it's not as childish as daddy, but it's a bit more familiar than father. Um, it is the cry of a son. It is, it is intimate, asking for those deepest needs to be met. It is, it is confident. You know, the father's going to hear and he's going to do what's best and it's, it's humble. You know, that's where Jesus is he's, he's going, his real desire is he just wants to be like his father. He wants to be a true son, an imitation where he fulfills his father's desires. He prays Abba. Uh, and in Romans 8, um, we're told every believer is given the same spirit of sonship. Sonship. It doesn't matter male or female, that's irrelevant. The point of sonship there is it's saying we've got the same access to the father that Jesus the son has. We pray to the all-powerful God of the universe, Abba Father, affectionately and intimately. And we pray knowing we don't have to demand our will, but knowing his will is to do ultimate good. He is powerful and loving. He can be safe to give everything to. Uh, So Timothy Keller writes, um, actually I'll give you a little bit before. He says, fathers are often inscrutable to little children. A four-year-old can't understand many of his father's prohibitions, but he trusts. Only if we trust God as Father can we ask for grace to bear our troubles with patience and grace. He picks it up. Somebody might ask, how can we be sure God's trustworthy? And the answer is that thy will be done is the one part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus himself prays in the garden. Under circumstances far more crushing than anything we will ever face. He submitted to his Father's will rather than following his own desires and it saved us. That's why you can trust him. Jesus is not asking you to do anything for him that he hasn't already done for you under conditions of difficulty beyond your comprehension. And he goes on a little more. He says, if we can't say, thy will be done from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace because we'll be compelled to try and control people or try and control our environment 
and make things the way we think they ought to be. And God will either give us what we ask for or gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he did. Because we're the four-year-old in that. And he knows better and he loves us more. It is safe to pray to our Abba Father, thy will, knowing he will give you what's best. Your will be done. Not easy words, but from Christ's lips, may they drive out your fears, may they lift your burdens. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for Jesus who allows us to see him in that moment before he went to the cross, to see him in agony for us, to see him trusting you and your good plans and purposes no matter the cost. Uh, Father, we thank you that he is faithful when we're faithless and that takes away our burdens. We thank you as well, Father, that he trusted your goodness and it reminds us we can trust you in anything and everything. And so, Father, help us see Christ and teach us to watch and pray. In his name we pray. Amen.